Welcome to Step Into the Story. Incredible conversations of how the Bible changes lives, changes families, and changes communities across the globe. And here's your host, Phil Tuttle of Walk Through the Bible. Well, welcome to Step Into the Story. You know, every time that we gather together, the goal is the same. The goal is to explore the intersection between an individual's life story and God's story. At Walk Through the Bible, we believe to the core of our being that the Bible changes everything. And sometimes in our conversations with a fascinating individual, we'll look at a time of crisis, maybe a a time of turmoil in their life or great trauma, and how God in his faithfulness used the scriptures to get that man or woman through that situation. There's other times when we'll be looking at the entire arc of a person's life and just to see the the continuously written story of how God continues to use his word in that man or woman to shape them. Today is an example just like that. We're going to be talking with Aaron Keyes. Aaron has been a friend for a long time of mine. He's known as a singer and a songwriter and certainly gifted in those ways. But more than anything else, and he's a worship leader. He delights in connecting people with God. And as we get into this conversation today, you'll hear about how he's expanding that and inviting others to join with him and learn together in that. I think you're going to love this conversation today on Step Into the Story. So, Aaron, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Phil. Excited to be here. Aaron, I don't know how long we've known each other. I've actually been friends with your parents, who are more my generation. Um, You're closer to the age of my kids. Um, But I know the friendship with your parents has lasted over 30 years now. And I don't know if you remember this or not, um, but the first time I remember meeting you, Ellen and I were up visiting your mom and dad, Steve and Becky, and uh, we were just sitting around in their living room having a conversation. And you came home from either a date or maybe you'd been at a ball game or something. And um, I thought, oh, what a nice kid. And then as we were continuing our conversation, um, we heard you playing the piano. And your piano in that house was almost like in the entryway. And yeah. um, we were just hearing you. And then pretty soon you were singing a little bit. And, and then we realized <laughs> our conversation, the four of us, had kind of just stopped. And we were just listening to you. And I, I said to your parents, I said, is that like, what is that? And and they're like, oh, that's just Aaron. He's just messing around. And um, well, your your messing around pulled us in so much that <laughs> I think my wife started the migration. But we ended up all four of us just just sitting and lying on the floor in your entryway. And you didn't see us right at first, and then kind of you turned around and and you just kind of smiled like, oh, that happens. And um, and we just we just had this impromptu worship service with this high school kid. Do you do you remember that at all, or was that just an average Friday no, night? No, I'm the middle child, and I, apparently I need attention or something. It sounds like very inconsiderate hospitality to me. I don't know. Well, it, it was effective. <laughs> you guys are having a conversation. Well, no. I'm glad. Uh, we have, yeah, I'm glad you're being charitable. <laughs> yeah. So so since that time, we've had an opportunity to do a number of things together. Whether it's a, you know, you've done some some ministry when my kids were in high school at, at different retreats and stuff. 
um, and then some with our major donor conferences that walk through the Bible. And, and just just fast-forwarding, you know, probably a long time since, since that first random meeting um, in, in the entryway of your house— I mean, you are a singer, you're a, you're a songwriter, and we sure want to talk about those things. But, but Aaron, more than anything else, you are a worship leader. And by that, you don't just lead songs, you lead people into worship. And my particular church background is not that different from your mom and dad. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, for me, worship was... Um, it's singing on pitch. It's it's learning parts. It's not messing up any words, and it's looking around to see who's looking at you to make sure you're doing it right. And um, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but but honestly, you leading worship the the times that we've been together, you have been the one who has freed me up to truly worship God. Um, and it's, it's, it's changed my life, which is why I wanted to get you on this broadcast. What do you think is key to, um, us being able to worship God like he asks us to? Uh, well, first of all, that's very kind of you to say. And secondly, I have loved every chance I've ever gotten to connect with Walter to do worship. I love any time a place values the Word of God, I know that we're going to get along fine in worship because, unfortunately, about 50, 60 years ago, worship and the Word kind of started getting split apart by mainstream worship culture and then it's kind of evolving, you know, reformation of worship culture where the Bible guys went one way, basically with Calvary Chapel and the Jesus Movement, and the worship guys went another way with Limber and the Vineyard. And unfortunately, in a lot of places, we're still kind of downstream from that dichotomy. And it's a, it's a heartbreaker because, to back, back to your question, um, what's key in, in worship? Like, worship is basically loving God. It's giving Him honor and worth. And just like in a, a marriage, you're not going to love someone more than you know them. I mean, you can be a fan of some celebrity, but you don't love them. They don't love you. There's no reciprocity, but in our relationship with God, with worship, we're, we're loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're, we're trying to fulfill that commandment um, to, to just pour out what he's poured into us. And you can't, you, you'll never eclipse your knowledge of God with your love for God, you know? Um, and so we've got to stay committed to scripture if we want to stay committed to growing in worship, because I mean, the angels keep singing and the elders and the living creatures, they keep saying holy in Revelation, but it's because they keep getting fresh glimpses of Revelation into God's character. So they keep seeing something else about his character. And then they cry and fall down holy and they see something else holy. And so the response of worship is, is it's contingent upon the revelation of the character of God, um, you know, especially revealed to us in Christ. And so the big thing for me, you know, that we've been talking about for a long time, almost 15 years with our worship school is that this is the first time in church history. This has never happened before where you've got what you have now, which is because someone can lead musically, we assume that they should lead spiritually. That's never happened in church history. That's never happened in the Bible. There's not one verse about worship leading in the Bible. You know, in the New Testament, it's not there in Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, worship leaders, just not there. 
So there's a lot about worship in the New Testament. There's a lot about leadership, and there's literally nothing about worship leading as we would refer to it. And so we just don't. We I absolutely refuse to to buy into what a what basically mainstream worship culture is telling us that because someone is musically competent, they're spiritually authoritative. That that is ridiculous, and that has never happened in church history until our generation. So. What we're trying to do is, is raise up um, a generation of men and women who are worship leaders in their churches because of their godliness, their groundedness, not just their giftedness. So it's, it's because of their walk with God, not just their ability to walk the, walk the cords around the chart. Um, and for us, one of the big questions that we always ask worship leaders is if you lost your ability to sing today, would your church still want you to be a spiritual leader tomorrow? Because if wow. not, then you're not. And it'd be good just to recognize that and do something about it. Sorry, long answer, but you, you've struck a nerve. That's a big passion of mine. No, I'm I'm going to be one of the first people who listens to this podcast, and I'm going to be taking notes when I do that because that, that all went by too fast. But as you were saying that, it was like there's been um, an uncomfortable just chafing in my spirit a lot of times about the whole worship industry. And, um, you know, I've, I've come a long way from going, oh, that's the pregame show before the word is taught. It's to get people mm-hmm. in the appropriate emotional frame of mind. I mean, thankfully, God's brought me farther than that. But, but so many times, you know, there's tremendous gift out there in terms of performance. But it's a rare mm-hmm. person who truly causes others to see God more clearly. And, um, you know, I've seen you do that with high school kids. Uh, like I said before, with our major donors who tend to skew toward a much older demographic and, and to watch, it doesn't matter what age the people are. I've seen God use you in, in powerful ways with them. And I think, I think what you were just talking about unlocks a lot of the key to it. I want to talk about your worship school for a minute, but um, I want to I want to jump over to the to the songwriter side of your being for a minute. Um, sure. You you've produced just almost a couple dozen, twenty or so albums. Um, if you mm-hmm. had a favorite song that that <laughs> you've this is an unfair question, I know, but if you if you have a favorite song that you've been allowed to to birth, what what song would that be? Do you have a favorite kid still? Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> okay, it's, I it's usually the one I'm currently <laughs> with. Yeah, is that the same with That's you? That's right. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's usually the last one that I've written or the one I'm working on now. Um, so, but to, to actually like give a name, I think I'm most excited right now about a Christmas song that I wrote last year called Praise the Name Emmanuel. Uh, because when it comes to leading worship, Christmas time gets tricky because you either get sappy nostalgia that's actually pretty dreadful theology. Like, do we really think Jesus as a baby didn't cry in the manger? Like, give, what a crock. You know, it's like at Christmas time, things get tricky. And so I've tried to start writing some songs that um, have some theological heft, have some melodic, you know, art. Um, feel Christmassy, but actually are worshipy. So I'm pretty excited about that one right now. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah, the pastors face a similar challenge, you know, that you've got to, you sure don't want to deviate from the time-tested <laughs> message. It is the story, and that story mm. is still needed. And yet there's this pressure to say it in a fresh way every year. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of pastors who they are not sad when New Year's gets here each year and they breathe a, a big <laughs> sigh of relief. And, you know, I, I see the same tension on, on the worship side of things sometimes, too. Can, right. can you yeah. um, can you describe some of the lyrics of, of that song when you said theological heft um, that that phrase i mean is it going to be in greek or hebrew or is it in english or <laughs> no it's in hebrew but my favorite songs to write these days um really are i'm, I'm trying to put as much substance into the style as possible and i think that it goes back to one of the reasons why i don't mind leading worship for 16 year olds or for 60 year olds um, because i think they're all hungry for substance they want to respond to what God is like and what he's done. But but sometimes the contemporary style is a little bereft of substance when we just sing one line about, you know, 20 minutes, uh, and, it's, and the line is about as weighty as Jesus, I want to nibble on your ear. Like, there's just not a lot there. So I'm trying to write um, songs that hopefully will last a little bit longer than the three-year cycle until it's just, you're, you know, it's worn out. So another another song, I will tell you some of the lyrics from that song, but another song that comes to mind, just because someone sent me a video of it um, being led by a bunch of worship leaders in Russia, um, is called Sovereign Over Us. And that's been an interesting song because of the, the different places that it's gone. And it's super encouraging to hear, you know, people send me, hey, have you heard Sovereign Over Us in Korean? And they'll send me a link. Oh, wow. Or, or this week was Russian. You know, and so it's about, it looks like 30 or 40 worship leaders across Russia on this video, all kind of zoom, zooming in together like we've gotten to see during the pandemic. Um, pretty, pretty special stuff. But anyway, Sovereign Over Us is trying to explore some of the weightier stuff of, I mean, theodicy and hurt and God's goodness and all that stuff. So anyway, praise, praise the name Emmanuel. Um, uh, I'm going to pull lyrics up because it's, I haven't let it in a few months because it hasn't been Christmas. But um, a few of the lyrics that I, that I really like. Oh, the other challenge was I want to write a song about the name Emmanuel and not put the word dwell in there. It's too obvious. It's like some rhymes. We have a moratorium in our worship school on certain rhymes. Like you instantly get kicked out of worship school <laughs> if you rhyme me and free, love and above fire and desire. And when it comes to Advent songs, I would add Emmanuel and dwell. So anyway, managed to do it. It says, in the dawn of darkened ages, shines the glory of a lamb, trading kingdoms for a manger. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Praise our maker, moved by mercy. Sing the kindness of his will. Hallelujah. God is with us. Praise the name Emmanuel. This is my favorite one. All creation long awaited, heaven's triumph to appear. For the hope of generations sinking quiet in despair, till a word, capital W, tore through the silence, crying, death will not prevail. Mighty Savior in a manger, call his name Emmanuel. Uh, I, I love that. Wow, There's, I didn't it's beautiful. Courses and some other stuff. There's more to it, but uh, I don't know when this podcast comes out, but if it's anywhere near Thanksgiving and Christmas, y'all should check it out. We did record it. It's on Spotify. Praise the name Emmanuel. I'm excited about that. Definitely. Yeah, we'll provide a link to that. 
with the show notes for this episode. Um, cool. Can you describe for a, I mean, I, I played tuba, which gives you a great future as a soloist for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, my wife drug me to one of the first practices for from the cantata in our church when we moved here. And after that practice, the, <laughs> the worship leader comes up and goes, Phil, you have a great voice. We, we need a narrator. And uh, migrated me up to the sound room where I could not do any damage, um, singing the tuba part as I was trying to do. Um, so in a, in a non-technical for a musical dropout like me, can you, can you describe the process by which God births a song in you? I, I know sometimes people get really nervous when they'll talk about why well, I was really inspired by God. I mean, there's a technical sense of inspired, like the Holy <laughs> Scriptures, right? And you, uh, you don't want to touch that in, in songwriting, and I don't want to touch that when I'm constructing a message. But yet there is a role that the Holy Spirit plays in giving us truth to share to other people. Can you just talk us through that process? I've always wanted to ask you that and never have had the chance. Oh, sure. It's different every time. And I, I love writing songs with other people. And so it's, it's certainly connected to their gifting and their own wiring. But for me, I have a couple different things that I tap into if I'm going to sit and write for, for a writing session. The first is anytime I'm just driving, I'm showering, I'm walking. If I just get a melody idea in my head, some notes, not even lyrics. Um, and I like it, I'll start singing it. And I'll just record it into my iPhone, right? So just into voice memos. So I've got hundreds and hundreds of just little voice memos that if anybody ever found my phone and listened to them, I would be mortified because they're embarrassing <laughs> and it, it sounds really bad. Uh, so there's that. That's just a constantly uh, expanding, you know, bank of melodies. And then uh, and sometimes I'll even have a sense, like this melody sounds like it should be about something triumphant or about something pensive or this is, this is this sounds like a confession or, or whatever. So I've got that on the melodic side, and then on the lyrical side, every year in my uh, Evernote, uh, just these notes that I keep on my computer and it syncs to my phone. I've got twenty all the way back to about twenty ten for about the last ten years. Anytime I, if I'm reading something, if it's scripture, if it's a novel, if I'm listening to a sermon, if I just have a thought and I go, that needs to be a, a song lyric. Or I've never heard that word in a worship song. Um, I'll just put that in that year's Evernote songwriting lyric, you know, journal entry. And so if I ever show up for a writing session and the other person has just got nothing, I can at least say, all right, give me five minutes. And I'll walk around outside and I'll listen through the last, you know, couple months for the melodic thing, see if any of them are still, are still feeling good sometimes. A little distance is all it takes for me to realize it was pretty crappy. Um, so I'll listen through, and then I'll, I'll I'll bring a few melody ideas to the session, and I'll say, and here's, you know, what if we wrote a song about our securities evaporating? That seems like a pretty good thing right now. So we just wrote a song last week. Um, with I wrote a song with John Egan and Andy Rosier from Harvest, at, uh, Vertical Music up in Chicago. Uh, and I'm pretty excited about that song because, we're trying to write about what people are actually experiencing. And I've, I've never heard a song say that. So yeah. this, this song says, 
Uh, there is a name that brings a perfect peace and ever-present help in time of need. Closer than the air we breathe, Jesus. He's the king upon the highest throne. He's the builder and the cornerstone. The only name that stands alone, Jesus. So I, I like the idea of, it seems like everyone's always talking about, we, we are in unprecedented times, blah, 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 right, blah, blah. Right, We've all right. heard it a thousand times. But like people are really feeling the, the certainty they had in their uh, 401k or in their their job. Uh, it, that stuff has just evaporated in front of, you know, over the last six months. And so trying to write songs that are addressing real people, a lot of times worship worship songs just require you to be like at a level 10 intensity with God in that moment to be able to connect with it, you know? But I, I just don't live at like level 10 intensity all the time. I can't. Nobody does. It. Nobody um, does. Yeah. And I don't think that's, that's what returning to your first love is about anyway. You know, I, I don't think Eros has anything to do with, with that letter to the church in Revelation 3, I think. So trying to selflessly, realistically offer myself to the Lord with what's going on in my life, not just idealistically or ecstatically, trying to write lyrics that kind of serve Monday morning, not just Sunday morning, and trying to, to write lyrics for people who uh, aren't 16 and just in puppy love with Jesus, but actually have some decades and are still faithfully following him despite all the hardship they've seen, despite the prayers that haven't been answered like they wanted. Uh, I'm trying to write songs for those people. I just think there's a lot more of those people than there are people who are just moving from glory to glory and everything they touch turns to gold. Yeah, I mean, that's authentic. And you and I, you and I have a mutual friend, Buddy Hoffman, who you served with for years, mm -hmm. and he's gone ahead of us on the glory now, great, great pastor. But years ago, Walk Through the Bible was going through a really, really, really tough time. And our founder had resigned, and it was a tough transition. And Buddy came. I was in charge of our chapels back then. And Buddy came, and he brought a message. I'll never forget this. He, like, smacked the wall till it just shook. And he goes, God's shaking up your world, hadn't he? In his kind of whiny <laughs> voice. And and, and he says, do you know why God shakes things up? And, you know, we're just lost. We're just sitting there listening. He goes, because he wants us to know he's the only thing that never shakes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's more than two decades ago now. And I remember that. And I've thought about that so much in the middle of this pandemic because we lose trust in our technology. We... We don't know which scientists to listen to. We've, we are just losing confidence in, in politicians of both parties. There's just our plans, our own wisdom, our strategies for security. All of that has been shaken and continues to shake. And, you know, Buddy's question of why would God do that, the answer is so that we'll discover he is the one who does not shake. And to mm -hmm. me, and that's Hebrews 12. I mean, Hebrews 12, 28. Since we're receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, let's worship acceptably with reverence and awe for our God's a consuming fire. So that's, that's pretty core to why we worship, according to the author of Hebrews. That's right. You know, every time we've ever had a conversation or you've led in worship, I mean, you do seem to um, just just drip or ooze scripture. And you know, it's one thing to go, oh, I, I want to read a verse before we launch into this song. 
Um, but with you, I don't, I don't see you reading much. It just seems to come out of your being. And um, mm. I'm sure there's a lot of um, discipline that nobody ever mm. sees. But what's, how does that happen? What is your pattern in relating to just making yourself strong with the scriptures? Yeah, it's changed over time, right? I mean, before we had kids, uh, I actually had this one-year honeymoon with the Lord. It was right when Megan and I had gotten married. I just graduated from college. I would just like been filled with the Spirit, you know, for the Pentecostal listeners, and I had this insatiable hunger for the Word. And Megan, my wife, we you know we just got married, just graduated from college, no kids yet. She was teaching uh, second grade at public school, and she was doing a master's degree at night. So. I was, you know, working for my dad's church, and I, I was working out of the house. So I basically had the house to myself from about 6.30 a.m. till about 6.30 p.m. a lot of nights. And I I found this teacher of the Bible, and John Corson. He, he's a, been a real hero of mine. He's a Calvary Chapel guy. He was out in Oregon. I met him a few times when I was leading worship out in California, and I would go up to his church on Sunday mornings at Applegate. And I had never heard anyone teach just verse by verse like that. It was so powerful, and every, everything that I heard him preach, I was like, this guy, this guy knows the Bible, you know? <laughs> and so I ordered 1,200 of his teachings through the whole Bible. Um, that, he, that was 20 years' worth of him teaching through the Bible. And he was discipled by Chuck Smith, who, who started wow. the, uh, yeah. the Calvary Chapel. But for that year, basically, I would turn on Corson. I started Genesis 1. I would take notes for the sermon. I would pause. I would worship. Uh, if he, if there was something that he was like, we need to be doing this, I would stop the sermon and I would try to do that. I would dance around my living room. I, I would, I had this eight hour a day, like time with God. And when my church elders said, we're taking an inventory of everyone's time and how they're spending their time, I showed them and they said, yeah, we can't pay you for this. <laughs> I was like, well, it's my, it's my monk here, you know? Uh, but it's funny, uh, that was before we had kids within a year we started having kids and I, I never have had that eight hour a day, five days a week time with God since then. But I do still have, I have to spend time in the word in the mornings because like you said, I don't know what to trust. I don't know what news channels to trust. I don't know what, um, <laughs> what news websites to trust and all of it's so ephemeral and it's so transient. I mean, three days, will go by and it is a new crisis. I have to have something hmm. that's more steady than that and, and more ancient, um, even than, you know, T.S. Eliot. And I love reading a lot of great stuff, but I think it's such a treasure that we have truth written down from thousands of years ago, languages we don't speak, cultures we don't understand, but it still speaks to us. And it has for, for centuries with people all around the world um, who live very differently than I live. Um, I just think that's incredible, and I I find so much life from staying connected to that living water. Mm -hmm. And from that that personal deep well, then comes the overflow of of the impact that you have on others publicly. You know, you chose a unique path to not just see how big you can make your personal public ministry, but to really sell out to Second Timothy two two of taking what you've received and entrusting it to other faithful men and women who will then be able to teach others also. And 
Um, tell us about 10,000 Fathers and what that was mm-hmm. in its embryonic phase and then now to make it accessible to more people. Talk about where you're going next. But but how did 10,000 Fathers, it's a weird name, and um, I, know, <laughs> I know it's talking about both men and women, but give us the origin uh-huh. of that name and the, the crazy thing that you and Megan did opening up your home. Yeah, about 20 years ago, I started writing songs, recording records, signed to a label over in Europe, and I had more and more opportunities to do bigger and bigger events. So I was eventually doing these arenas and doing these big leadership conferences with 15,000 people. And the whole time, I'm thinking, I, I should still be getting trained. Like, I, I'd read how the priests, you know, study from 20 to 30, they minister from 30 to 50, and then they train the younger guys. Um, who are coming up after their 50. And, and I'm in my 20s with these huge opportunities. And I, I wasn't like kicking the doors down. God was just opening his doors, and I felt real conflicted most of those stages. Um, we were having great worship, and cool stuff was happening. I was getting invited to more and more events. But the whole time I'm just thinking, I should be getting trained right now. Like I, I don't feel like this is it. I, I feel like there's a lot more for me to learn. And what was interesting was, um, because I was traveling a lot, a lot of churches would reach out to me after after the fact and say, hey, if you're interested in becoming a worship pastor in, you know, Nowheresville, Mississippi, we'd love to have you. And I had no interest in going to Nowheresville, Mississippi. Um, but I cared that those congregations had someone to shepherd them in worship, not just entertain them with music. And so I would send people that I trusted to go and become these worship leaders at these churches. And real quick, I ran out of uh, people I could keep sending. Mm-hmm. And so one week I got three of those calls in three days. Um, one of those calls was from David Platt, a friend of mine who was in Birmingham at the time. And he said, look, we've got great singers. He said the same thing every other pastor that would call me would say, we've got great singers. We've got a great band. We have a congregation that wants to worship. We just don't have anyone to shepherd them. Yep. Can you help us? Or do you know anyone that could help us? And it broke my heart. And so my, my wife and I and Buddy, who you mentioned, we started talking and praying about what could we do because I, I want the world to worship Jesus. I think biblically, I think historically, when worship goes right, everything starts going right. And when worship goes wrong, everything starts going wrong. And so I think it's one of the reasons the enemy comes so hard after worship. And worship, instead of being united, uniting, it's divisive and it's fraught, you know, and all kinds of stuff. So uh, we want to see, I want to see the whole world worship Jesus. And that's going to require a lot more people than me. That's going to require a lot more churches than mine. And I want to see it happening in a lot more cities than the city I live in. That means we're going to have to actually multiply, not just keep adding events. We're going to have to multiply shepherds and pastors. And so I'd done internships before that with young guys, you know, who are interested in leading worship. We'd read a book and we'd talk about it and we'd write together and lead together. But it felt like that—that that is such. It's just bushly compared to what Jesus did with raising up leaders. It's not doing and life so together. Made, no, we were doing mentorship, which is like come meet with me. But Jesus did discipleship, which is come follow me. And so we bought a house and we got a tour bus where we could have people come live with us indefinitely, go on the road with my, with my band. They live in our basement, and for the first few years, worship school was pretty organic and it just looked like guys living in our house and I would teach them the Bible in the morning and we would lead, we go to the church staff meeting if my band was leading it at an event they'd come with me and they'd lead with me 
and that's how we did it. But then it got pretty constricted because uh, you basically had to be a single young man to come do worship school. And I was getting more calls from leaders saying, I've never been trained. I've got this platform. I need help. I need tools. Can I come live with you? Oh, also, I have five kids. Yeah, right. And I was like, uh, no, you, I already have four kids. You can't come bring your five kids into my house. And I don't think you should be away from your kids. So we started changing the model to be more just like grad school. You go for a week. There's the intensive. But we, it's way more fun than the grad school that I've been a part of. Um, we're, we're really trying to do life together, feast, like feasting, fasting, playing, praying, worshiping, digging into scripture, learning best practices, listening to great uh, people with expertise. So we do that for a week and then they go home and they do their normal work, their normal job, but they have weekly assignments with, with worship school, weekly huddle that they show up with a small group, their coach, maybe that's me. One of us, other the people, the other people that we've raised up, there's about 20 coaches now around the world. Um, and this is an 18 month journey now where people come for five days and then they go home. And they do their normal work for six months with doing weekly touch points with us, weekly assignments, curriculum, coursework, and coaching huddles. Then they come back six months later for another five-day intensive. Six more months of distance, and then one more week of intensive, six more months of distance coaching. So it's 18 months total. That's worship school. That's accredited now. That's like it's accredited with both undergraduate and graduate levels. So for master's level and bachelor's, but a lot of people aren't ready to start seminary or they don't have the availability to do a five-day intensive. So what we've launched very recently, like in the last couple months, is a $10 a month, it's actually less than $10 a month, subscription called Mere Worship, where people can start instantly getting content delivered weekly. It's, it's all this, I'm teaching the best stuff that I've learned over the last 20 years, the stuff I wish someone would have taught me. And... They're in a community of other worship leaders from around the world who are probably struggling through a lot of the same things that, that they find themselves struggling with. And so we're all kind of learning together and learning from one another. How do we do this better, uh, especially now with COVID and everything? I mean, certain countries and certain states are more locked down than others, I know. But place, there are places doing this really well, and there are places doing it really poorly. The leaders, a, a lot of worship leaders kind of became the de facto IT directors of their churches exactly. in the last six months. Yeah, we're seeing that all around so the world. Yeah, we're just, so mere worship is basically, it's the subscription-based model where it's super cheap. Anyone can do it. You can start at any time. And you basically get in the flow of the traffic that 10,000 Fathers will ultimately be like the super highway on. Um, we hope that 10,000 Fathers is what everyone will want to do but we recognize a lot of them can't. So we've launched Near Worship recently to be a place that they can at least come, get a lot of great teaching, a lot of training, and some belonging, even though it's not in person and it's not accredited and it's not all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and we'll, two great options, though, for worship leaders. We'll put the website for that on on our site. But what what is the best way for people to get in touch with you if they wanted to? Yeah, worship.school, that's the website for 10,000 Fathers. And you did ask, where did that name come from? It's from personal school, real quick. Paul says, even if you had 10,000 teachers, you don't have many fathers. But this is what I've become for your sake. So imitate me as I imitate Christ. The language that the New Testament uses exhaustively about discipleship after the book of Acts is family. It it's is. sons and daughters and fathers and mothers. And so that's, we're called 10,000 Fathers because we want to actually raise up um, spiritual mothers and fathers 
who will creatively shape the future of the church. That's, that's our passion. We want to see the whole world worshiping Jesus, and we think it's going to take a lot more than cute, good singers with skinny jeans and nice guitar players. They need still authority. They're going to need gravity, depth, and this is the stuff that only happens over time and faithfulness, and that's what both Ten Thousand Fathers and Mere Worship are designed to help steward. Mm. Aaron, Aaron, just one more quick question and quick answer. What would you say to somebody, regardless of their age, and um, not not just thinking in terms of music, but somebody who feels like I've got a song inside of me, but I'm afraid to let it out, or I've got a story I wish I could tell, but I'm afraid to let it out, or I've got a I've got a creative idea of a way to serve other people. But I don't know. I don't know if it'll work. Or you know, I could give you ten more examples of that. But what would you say to that guy or girl or man or woman? Um, because you've busted through that and taken tremendous risks in your life. What would you say to that person who feels like I think God's stirring something inside of me, but I'm I'm not sure, so I'm keeping it in. What would you say to that person? Uh, yeah. Sorry. I mean, when we first started worship school years ago, it didn't look like it does now. It wasn't accredited. It wasn't, you know, we have 40 students coming next month to Colorado for this first intensive out west. And you can look at something walk through or like your favorite preacher and go, I could never do that. Well, they couldn't either 20 years ago, you know, but they started small. And I think about an illustration from Lauren Whitehead. He was a physicist in 1983, and he did this study on dominoes like if you ever set up dominoes and you set them up in a line and then you knock them all down and he discovered that a domino can knock over another domino 150 percent the two inch domino it can knock over a three inch domino a 10 inch domino if they're worth a thing could not go 15 inch domino and so it goes and so he's studying how the, the energy transfers between these things and he said if you started with a two inch domino and you just go 150% each time, which it will work, then 18 dominoes in, you can knock over the Leaning Tower of Pisa. 23, you can knock over the Eiffel Tower. 29, there's enough energy just starting with a two-inch domino to knock over the Empire State Building, which is crazy. If you just start small and do it consistently, it's amazing what God can do. And so I would encourage anyone... Yeah, it might not be the best song ever that you've got in your heart, and it might not be the best word ever that you've got that you want to share. Um, and you don't need to look for the biggest platform to do that anyway. But start small. Like, can you share it with one person? Can you share it with your family? Like, you might not change the world, but you probably could change your family, you know? Um, can you start small? Because I think that the the stuff that we're pushing in, in both Worship School and their Worship is, that successful people do consistently what normal people do occasionally. And we've got to be willing to start small. We can't sit there and stare at the Empire State Building and claim all kinds of promises of God and prophesy over it and, and blow our shofars and march around it and expect to start with the big things when we haven't even been faithful in the little. So let's stop asking God to do these huge things for us if we aren't even being faithful to do the small things for Him. Great word. I don't know if anybody else needed to hear that, but I personally needed to hear that today. You know, perfectionism is not only the thief of joy, but perfectionism is the great inhibitor of creativity. 
And um, so thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Aaron. I've loved every time we've gotten to serve together. I look forward to whenever that next time is and uh, continue to pray for you and Megan and and your kids and uh, the, the ministry of you multiplying your life into others. Thank you so much for joining us today on Step Into the Story. Love you guys. Thanks for having me. It was great. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Step Into the Story. You know, the goal of this podcast is to explore the intersection of some person's individual story and God's story and how God interrupts their story with his story. We really believe at Walk Through the Bible that God's word changes everything. And you heard it over and over in, in Aaron's account of how it's the Word of God that's not just changing his life and marriage, energizing his ministry, but now reproducing that to, to hundreds and even thousands of people around the world. And that's the same thing God calls each of us to, whether on a broad stage or just in our own homes. It's equally significant. And I pray that today this will encourage you personally to step into the story. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for the Step Into the Story podcast, powered by Walk Through the Bible. We'd love to hear what you think by giving us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Also, don't miss a single episode by clicking the subscribe button. If you'd like more resources to help you explore and live God's word in your daily life, visit walkthrough.org. That's W-A-L-K-T-H-R-U dot O-R-G. Walk through the Bible. Take a walk. Change the world.